There are two readings, both from the New Testament. The first one is from John chapter 1, starting at verse 1 to verse 5, and can be found on page 860 in the Pew Bibles. John chapter 1, starting from verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The second reading is from Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, and can be found on page 967. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Here ends the reading. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, today is the fourth in our series from Advent to Christmas Day on the theme of the supremacy of Christ. We've been using that rather cheeky title, Jesus the Greatest of All Time, G-O-A-T. So far we've had, he is King of Kings, Revelation 1. He's the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1. He's the one before whom all bow down, Philippians 2. And this, today, he is the sustainer of all things, Hebrews 1. And if you have a church Bible there, it's on page 967. There's a very good reason why the author of Hebrews emphasizes the supremacy of Christ to his original readers, who are most likely believing Jews living in Italy, possibly Rome. They were getting tired and worn out under relentless pressure and were in danger of giving up, giving up on Jesus Christ, that is. For them, giving up would not mean giving up all religion, an idea that probably made no sense really in the ancient world, but going back to their original Jewish identity and customs without belief in Jesus. Now, the writer who's unknown to us, but plainly known to them, doesn't bag out Jewish identity or our scriptures. Instead, he reminds them that there's been a development. And he writes to them, what well, is not, not so much a letter as a written sermon, urging them to stay fast. Listen to the opening words. We heard it just a moment ago. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. 
at many times, in many ways, in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son. Yes, it is by a son, actually. Uh, his son is in IV trying to be helpful. That is, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors, us Jews, through the prophets in, at many times in various ways. That is, through what is now the Jewish script, what, what is now the scriptures, including especially in the author's mind, the book of Moses, the Moses books. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which as he says in chapter two, verse three, was first announced by the Lord and confirmed to us by those who heard him. That's the development which changes everything. And the author urges his readers to keep listening to that gospel by emphasizing the utter superiority of the one through whom God spoke it. In these last days, he's spoken to us by a son. So hold firm to that. Now, at this stage, we don't need to go any further into the situation of the readers of the Hebrews book or how this marvelous book unfolds. Uh, that's for another time, in fact, for next year, when we hope to do at least some of Hebrews in the second half of 2023. But what I want to do today is draw your attention to the rich and impressive way the Son through whom God has spoken is described in these opening words. Hebrews 1 to 4, which are all, by the way, one sentence in the original Greek. Would you believe it? There are seven, seven wonderful aspects he describes. But in these last days, he writes, he has spoken to us by our Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, one. Through whom he made the universe, two. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, three. And the exact representation of his being, four. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, five. After he'd provided purification for sin, six. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, seven. Want to hear those again? Whom he appointed the heir of all things, that's one. And through whom he made the universe, that's two. He is the radiance of God's glory, that's three. The, the exact representation of his being, that's four. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, that's five. After he'd made purification for sins, that's six. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, that's seven. Now, I'm going to deal with these, not in the order that they appear in the text here, but rather group them into three groups, um, three headings. And the headings are the Son in relation to God, the Son in relation to everything else, that's my second heading, and then very briefly and finally, the achievement of the Son. Let's do it that way, shall we? Firstly, then, the Son in relation to God. Now, other than using the word a Son, which tells us something of that relationship, there are two other crucial, distinction, uh, important descriptions given in verse 3. One is, he is the radiance of God's glory. And the other one is, he is the exact representation of God's being. The radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. These are beautiful and powerful ways of expressing who this son is in relation to God. And yet, they're not easy to explain simply in other words either. They, they, there's something poetic about them that just eludes your... What, what exactly do you mean? I mean, take, he is the radiance of God's glory. Imagine God's glory as that inapproachable light in which he dwells. The sun is the radiance of that glory. 
the, the Greek word the Greek word here means outshining. He is the outshining of the glory of God. Or take he is the exact representation of God's being. The words translated exact representation is the word that can mean imprint or stamp, like a die stamps on a, on a, you know, a seal or something like that, a stamp, right? His exact imprint of God's very being. There is, there is the being of God, and here is exact representation. Now, the writer is saying the same thing as, I think, as Paul was trying to say when in Colossians he writes that the Son is the image of the invisible God. Or when John opens his gospel with the description of the Son as the Word who was with God and was God. There are all different ways of describing who he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his very being. Now I think it's remarkable that this is the first generation of believers who said this about Jesus. In other words, it was said right at the beginning. It's not some late development, hundreds of years later, that people make up. No, it's there from the beginning. They confess that Jesus, the man Jesus, was to be included within the identity of the one God. Although you can see them, as, and me too, struggling to find words to make sense of this astounding reality. Hundreds of years later, the Christian movement further thrashed out how to express this New Testament witness truthfully in the face of attempts to simplify it in ways that denied its truth. The result was a statement we know as the Nicene Creed, named after the town in which it was agreed on in the early fourth century of the Christian era. Now you will have this, traditionally we have that creed at Holy Communion services, so we have it once every so often here at Holy Communion. And here's how they put it to make sense of what we've seen in, in Hebrews in their language. I quote, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of his Father. That was, there never was when he wasn't Son. There never was when, and that was a crucial issue in those days. Some said, Son, there was a time he wasn't. No, no, they said, eternally begotten of the Father. Here's, here's the bit I like. God from God. He is God, but he's from God. Light from light. True God from true God. Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through whom all things were made, goes on to say. As one scholar put this, this is really a statement of what you might call derived equality. Derived, the Son is from the Father in some way, like the radiance is from the light, like the imprint is from the being, and yet of one being with the Father, not, not simply of like being, but a one being, identity. That captures something in more technical theological terms of the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. That's his relation to God. First heading. Second, his relationship to everything else. And here's where I'll put my main, main emphasis this morning. And here the author uses three descriptors. In verse 2, there are two of them. In these last days, God has spoken to us by a son, one, whom he appointed heir of all things, and the second one, through whom he made the universe. And the third one is in verse 3, he sustains, that again, sustaining all things by his powerful word. They're the, they're the three things in relation to everything else. 
whom he put heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, literally the ages, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, by all things, or everything else, it means everything else that is not God. You might say there are only two kinds of realities. That which is God, and that which is created by God, all things. Now, let me deal with these three descriptors, not in the order they're mentioned here, but what you might call the chronological order of past, present, future. Past, through the Son, God made the universe. Present, the Son now sustains all things by his powerful word. The future, the Son will inherit all things. Part, past. I find it quite remarkable also that the New Testament witnesses to the fact that these first believers understood that Jesus of Nazareth was not only raised from the dead, was not only the Messiah, was not only the Son of God, but in some way, all that exists has come into being through him. <coughs> and yet that's exactly what is asserted here. In these last days, God has spoken to us by a son through whom he made the universe. <coughs> Excuse me. We find this exalted claim elsewhere. We find it in Paul. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. For us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We find it in John, opening words of the gospel. Speaking of the word, John writes, through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. That's the past, present. Hebrews goes a step further than Paul or John. Not only does it assert the Son is he who, through whom God made the universe, but also the Son, quote, sustains all things by his powerful word. The Son sustains all things by his powerful word. Now, do you hear what that's saying? Whatever exists continues in existence, continues to be, not because it has power of itself to do so, but because the divine Son sustains it by his powerful word. It's not that God brings everything to being through him and that's it. Creation's continual being also is an ongoing gift of God through his son. You might say creation is a gift. It doesn't have to be. It's God's gift in grace. He, he creates that which is not God. But his continual existence is God's continual gift through his son. He sustains things by his powerful word. Look, just look around you, around you for a moment. Just look at... Look at the floor, look at the ceiling, look at the person in front of you. There's nothing you can look at, which at this very instant, he's not sustaining by his powerful word. Now, you may be thinking at this point, this is madness. I mean, Christmas is only a week away. That's madness in itself, actually. <laughs> but you say to me, are you telling me that a newborn baby lying helpless in the feeding trough is also at the very same time the one that holds everything in continual existence? Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. That's what the opening words of to the Hebrews is saying. Let me blow your mind a little further. Think for a minute how immense all things are. Now, I don't know how big the author of to the Hebrews thought all things were when he wrote those words. Today, 
we have a more accurate idea. At this moment, we're orbiting around a star, our sun. Astronomers estimate that there are about 300 billion stars. That's 300,000 million stars in our Milky Way galaxy. 300,000 million stars in this galaxy, right? How many galaxies are there? Well, perhaps two trillion. That is two million million galaxies, not stars, galaxies, in which there are in each galaxy some thousands of millions of stars. That's what the sun sustains by his powerful word. Now, if that doesn't fill you with wonder and awe, I don't know what will. I don't know what will. But wait, there's more. Although Hebrews mentions it first, we come lastly to this section. The son will inherit all that is left, everything else. He is the heir of all things. In these last days, God has spoken by a son whom he appointed heir of all things. Now, the link between being a son and an heir, one who will inherit something, may not be too strong with us, but in the Bible and the ancient world, it was fundamental. That's what sons did. They inherited. That's, by the way, the reason people got, ado got adopted in the Roman world, not to have cute little babies, but to ensure proper inheritance. And that link is most explicit in a psalm that I think, among many other psalms that lie behind this material, Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, the Lord promises his anointed king in words like this. This is Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. So here, except now it's not just the ends of the earth, it's all things. That is, the universe is not really made through the sun, not only held in being by the sun, but exists and in a sense we the inheritance of the sun. And you find the same thing in Colossians. All things have been created through him and for him, says Paul. And asking, what does it mean to inherit all things? What, what does that actually mean? The nearest thing I can find elsewhere is, is what Paul writes in the first chapter of Ephesians. He doesn't use the same language, but I think he's heading in the same direction. Um, he writes of God making known what Paul calls the mystery of his will, God's secret plan, in other words. I quote, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. The word meant to, to bring to fulfillment together. God's plan for the universe is that it be gathered up in the sun. The past, God made everything else, the universe, by the sun. The present, the sun now sustains everything else by his powerful word. The future, the sun will inherit everything else. He is the heir of all things. That's what we're being taught here in the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1. The implications, I'm sure uh, you uh, understand, are profound. Let me just give two brief ones. Implication one, we must think of God and of his son properly. Most often our problem is, as the book as the title of a book by J.B. Phillips, 
wrote ages ago, but I see it's still in print. Your God is too small. Your God is too small. For example, we must not imagine God or his son as simply another being in the universe, albeit a very large, beautiful, grand being. Greater power. No, no, that, that's, it's a common mistake made, by the way, by what once were called the new atheists, now called the not-so-new atheists, and many believers as well. They think of God as just a very large being in the universe. No, no, God's not a being in the universe at all. God is the source and the ground and the end of all reality. He is the unity and existence of every particular thing. He's the, he's the ground, as one writer put it, of the possibility of anything at all. That's who he is. That's who the son is. But you might say to me, hang on, hang on. But isn't Jesus Christ a human being? Isn't he still a human being? The answer is yes, he is. God, the divine son, of, through whom and for whom all things were created, took humanity to himself, yet without any diminution of his deity. Two natures, his eternal divine nature and now his human nature joined. But joined in the one person. And who is that one individual? He is the eternal divine son of God. That's who the one person is. Now this may make your brain hurt. So much of the being of God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit is incomprehensible to us finite human minds. What we can do is hold on to what we can know and respond with wonder and worship and trust and awe and not let our God be too small or our Son of God be too small. The second profound implication I think is easier. I hope so. It's simply this point. If the Son is the one through whom all things were created, the one who sustains all reality through his powerful word, the one who is the heir of all things, then he does not come in, as it were, to this world as an alien invader. It's his already. Nor is his claim of lordship over us that which oppresses us. From outside of the Christian faith, you often people feel that if I'm going to let my life submit to the lordship, the lordship of the risen Lord Jesus, I'm losing something. I'm losing myself and my freedom. But no, that is not the case. In fact, the opposite is the case. We are made through him and for him. He sustains us by his powerful word. Therefore, his claim over us does not take away our freedom and flourishing. In fact, it actually restores it. We become more who we're to be, more human. Restored to yourself. Can I say there's no conjunction of ideas more important for biblical faith than the continual affirmation that God is not only the Redeemer but also the Creator as well? Well, that's the wonder of the relation of God, sorry, of the Son to everything else. We've seen relation to God, to everything else. And lastly, the achievement of the Son, verse 3 after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
Now, I will not say much at this time about this very important statement today. We'll be returning to it at length and in, with richness in our series, series next year. So, look forward to seeing you then. <laughs> but today, I don't want to ignore it either. This one who is exalted suffers, has suffered as we do. He has been raised. He has offered himself as unblemished to God. And so once and for all time has obtained purification for sins. And now he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He shares now, as it were, exalted and enthroned the majesty of God in his new state, risen from the dead. That's the son in relation to his achievement. Well, what, what do we say then about all this? There's so much that could be said. Following the writer of the Hebrews, I'll say this, pay attention, careful attention to what we've heard from the son. Do not wander from it. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Hold firmly to the faith we possess. Approach God's grace, sorry, the throne of God's grace with confidence. Run with perseverance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Oh, come, let us adore.